Former President Donald Trump is expected in court today to argue he's immune from prosecution for charges related to the 2020 election. It's Tuesday, January 9th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, Secretary of State Antony Blinken will be in Israel today. Doing everything possible to deter escalation, uh, to prevent a widening uh, of the conflict. It's his fourth trip since the war between Israel and Hamas began in October. Also this hour, how health officials in Wyoming are working to reduce the state's high suicide rate. Plus, Florida's Republican Party picks a new leader after its old one was accused of sexual assault. And this hour, the NPR music team looks at some of the interesting albums due out this year. In sports, Bruins and Celtics lose. Increasing clouds near 40 today, a big rain and windstorm moves in tonight. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Former President Donald Trump says he'll head to court in Washington, D.C. today. It's for make-or-break arguments in one of the federal prosecutions against him. NPR's Kerry Johnson reports Trump will argue he is immune from criminal charges because he was in the White House at the time of the January 6th attack. Trump's lawyers say he was acting as president, not a political candidate, when he took steps to question the integrity of the 2020 election. He says he deserves a total shield from prosecution in the election interference case against him. If the appeals court agrees, it would mean no trial for Trump in D.C. this spring. Trump is likely to appeal any adverse ruling to the full appeals court and ultimately the U.S. Supreme Court, trying to delay a legal reckoning until after this year's election. Carrie Johnson, NPR News, Washington. Congress returns to work today after its holiday break, and lawmakers need to immediately deal with a potential government shutdown. Congressional leaders say they have agreed on a framework for spending legislation for the federal government, but that agreement has infuriated some House Republicans, like Texas Congressman Chip Roy. I do not support this bill, and and it's chock full of gimmicks, same kind of stuff that everybody in America is sick of, regardless of whether you're left or far right. Uh, The fact of the matter is, We're tired of the same old, same old. We're spending more money that we don't have. He spoke to CNN. Conservatives are mad because the deal sticks to the same overall spending terms that former Speaker Kevin McCarthy struck with President Biden. And McCarthy lost his job over it. 2023 was the hottest year on record, according to new data released by European Union scientists. NPR's Rebecca Hersher reports it broke the previous record by a lot. 2023 was almost two-tenths of a degree Celsius hotter than the previous hottest year on record in 2016, according to EU figures. That may not sound like a lot, but every tenth of a degree matters, and the Earth is very sensitive to temperature changes. It's kind of like a person with a fever. Your body temperature doesn't need to change by very many degrees for you to go from healthy to sick. And last year, the planet was almost a degree and a half Celsius hotter than it used to be in the late 18 hundreds, according to the new data. That's more than two and a half degrees Fahrenheit. Temperature records will keep falling in the coming years unless greenhouse gas emissions from burning oil and gas rapidly decline, scientists warn. Rebecca Hersher, NPR News. Secretary of State Antony Blinken has returned to Israel today. It's his latest round of talks with Israeli leaders. He's also going to meet with families of hostages who are held by Hamas. These meetings come as the Iranian-backed militant group Hezbollah fired again today at northern Israel. The projectile fired hit an Israeli army base. The Israeli military says there was no damage. You're listening to NPR News. 
I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBUR in Boston. The interim president of Harvard is addressing the school community for the first time since stepping into the role. In a letter sent yesterday, Alan Garber urged people to work together to bridge divisions on campus. He also expressed sorrow over the resignation of Claudine Gay. She stepped down as president last week over accusations of plagiarism. Garber says he regrets the circumstances that led him to be president but plans to be committed to the position. State lawmakers are considering a plan to leverage the Deep Rainy Day Fund to get more federal funding. Governor Healy pitched the idea last year. The state would use interest from the Rainy Day account to use as matching funds for federal grants. Healy says that would make Massachusetts more attractive to win those grants. The state Senate is expected to take up the idea on Thursday. The head of the U.S. Department of Energy visited New Hampshire yesterday to tout clean energy investments. The department announced an initiative to support new technology for heat pumps that can work in cold climates. Mara Hoplomazian reports that prototypes of the technology will be installed later this year. Secretary Jennifer Granholm highlighted energy efficiency efforts, including the Cold Climate Heat Pump Technology Challenge, a project started in 2021 to speed up the development of heat pumps that can operate more efficiently and in colder weather. The department announced four more heat pump manufacturers have successfully produced prototypes, bringing the total number of companies that passed the laboratory testing phase of the challenge to eight. It's pretty exciting to see the uptake in heat pump technology because people recognize that it reduces their energy bills, reduces their carbon pollution, right? And also it saves them a lot of money. Heat pumps allow people to heat their homes with electricity, helping move away from fossil fuels like propane, gas or heating oil. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Mara Hoplamazian. A number of Massachusetts communities are getting federal money to buy cleaner electric school buses. The money from the Federal Environmental Protection Agency will go to Boston, Worcester, New Bedford, and Fall River. The grant funds both electric buses and those fueled by propane or compressed natural gas. Those both produce less emissions than regular diesel-fueled school buses. The Boston Pride Parade is back this year on June 8th. This is the second year the event is being put on by the volunteer group Boston Pride for the People. It's 7.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Lyric Stage. With Trouble in Mind, Alice Childress's moving backstage look at identity and stereotypes of 1950s Broadway. LyricStage.com. The Celtics lost to the Pacers 133-131 to last night in Indianapolis. They'll return home tomorrow to play the Minnesota Timberwolves. And the Bruins fell to the Avalanche 4-3 in a shootout last night in Denver. The Bees will visit the Arizona Coyotes tonight. Increasing clouds this morning. It'll be near 40. A storm starts moving in this afternoon. It'll begin as some snow outside of 495 before changing over to rain. We'll get heavy rain overnight with strong winds, especially right along the coast. The storm moves out early tomorrow morning. It'll eventually turn mostly sunny with temperatures in the 50s early, then falling into the 40s. It's 28 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Joyce Foundation, committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Learn more at JoyceFDN.org. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. Congressional leaders have agreed on a spending plan for the year, and now they have to persuade a majority of the rest of Congress to agree. 
House Speaker Mike Johnson signed on to a deal that raises defense spending and restrains other spending. The overall numbers are along the lines of a deal made by his predecessor, Kevin McCarthy, a deal that played a role in prompting some of his fellow Republicans to revolt because they wanted much sharper spending cuts, among other things. Congressman Tim Burchett of Tennessee is one of the Republicans whose votes ultimately removed McCarthy last year. So what now? He joins us from lovely East Tennessee in Knoxville. Congressman, good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me on. Can you support this agreement? Not at this point. I cannot. Why not? Well, currently we're taking in about $5 trillion a year and we're spending $7 trillion. And there's no, I don't care if you're a liberal, a conservative, a moderate, or a mugwomp. Those numbers just do not work. That's Washington math. And um, and they cannot continue that way. If we would just go back to pre-COVID spending levels, we could um, we could balance this thing out. But but there's no attempt to do that by either side, really. Um, and uh, I, I wish we had time. I wish we had time to, to define for people the word mugwump. But I guess they're going to have to go look that up for themselves. <laughs> uh, let me yes, ask about sir. a couple of details here. There's more spending here for Ukraine. Is your party ready to sign on to that? Well, I currently am not. We've given them $114 billion. If you remember, President Trump said he wanted to build the wall for $4 billion, and we were told by um, Democrat leadership then that that would pretty much break us. Now we've given Ukraine $114 billion unchecked dollars. Um, I would like to see Europe step up. You know, Germany, when they do their figuring, they figure in how many... Um, refugees they take in, for instance, and who takes in more refugees in this world than the, than the United States of America? Well, I mean, as, uh, as far as far as like literal refugees, the United States takes takes in fewer than Germany has. But let's just talk here for a moment about what the administration would say is at stake, that the United States what, would lose its credibility if it drops support for Ukraine. Say that again. I'm sorry. The United States would say it's losing its international credibility, among other things, if it were to drop support for Ukraine. I don't know about that. I just think that Europe needs to step up. I just don't think that that's not America's war. We're slipping into another Vietnam-type situation where we first gave them money, and then um, we gave them armaments, and then we gave them advisors, and then basically they gave us body bags with our with our boys, sending them back home. And I just don't see that. We've 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 got the largest aircraft carrier fleet in the world over there, uh, the Gerald R. Ford, at least it was. Um, I mean, we've sent that to the Mediterranean. Right. So I would say I would submit to you that we we still have a pretty pretty huge um, international influence, and I don't. And we've already put 114 billion dollars, and I would think that that 114 billion back home could be spent a whole lot better. Now, let me just ask, uh, we could we could go through a lot of items where you feel that too much is spent if you're feeling that we're trillions of dollars off the mark here. Uh, but let's talk about the political realities. A lot of Democrats can support this. Your speaker can support it. I presume a lot of Republicans are going to support it then. So can you stop it? No, I don't think we can. We can try. Um, we, can, we can delay it, I believe. And with Schumer, given his okay, that just that gives the Democrats in the House cover. But still, we take in $5 trillion and spend $7 trillion. I know we're coming up on an election year, and that makes everybody uneasy. But in East Tennessee, we try to be fiscally aware, as in Tennessee, we're a balanced budget state. Um, our state government at least is. And I think that the people of this area 
respect fiscal responsibility. And right now, we're not being fiscally responsible. We are we are borrowing at least two trillion a year, and that is from the Chinese. And one year, one day, that money will come due, uh, and it that is, will be it a is, very painful time. It is true the United States has borrowed from China, and that interest rates have have gone up. Let me ask about what this means for your party. As I noted, Kevin McCarthy signed on to these top line numbers last spring. Uh, there was a kind of revolt within his party, within your conference then, and McCarthy had to back off the deal, and that was part of a process that ultimately le- led to him losing his job. Would you endanger Speaker Mike Johnson over agreeing to essentially the same deal? Well, I was more upset with the process than the product under Kevin McCarthy. If you remember, we um, had a fiscal year ending in September, and we took off the whole month of August and then two weeks into September, and then we were supposed to come back in a week and a half, and they were going to jam a poor budget down our throats. At least this time, we've, we have we know what we're going to consume. It wasn't force-fed us. And um, and the process has been a lot more open. I would hope that in the future, though, we would we would try to have some fiscal restraint. Uh, Congressman, I want to uh, go just a little bit longer here to put a big question on the table and get your thoughts on it. I think you know that that a lot of critics of your conference would regard some of your members as obstructionists, as being against everything. Um, and I just want to think this through. There is a point where in saying no, you are exercising democracy. You're representing your voters. You're representing your point of view. It's what you're there to do. There is some other point where you would not be supporting democracy because you're demanding 100% of what you want or you break the system, uh, refuse to compromise, which is just not very democratic. Where would you draw the line between those two things? I would submit to you the whole democratic process is... Um is is at risk right now with our fiscal cliff we are running off of. We are $34 trillion in debt, and there is no plan, no party has the guts to make the cuts to do anything. All I'm saying is go back under pre-COVID spending levels. I don't think your listeners could name one program they could do without that's been added to uh, to the federal government since COVID, other than the COVID funding that that they could do without. That's all we're asking for. It's fiscal responsibility. We take in five trillion. We're spending seven trillion. That is not economically feasible any shape, form, or fashion. Although no business, no charity, NPR, nobody could operate under those, under those, uh, under that scenario. Although your speaker, who's quite conservative, thinks it's all right this deal. Well, I I, I don't know that his conservative credentials are calling and been called into question or not. I'm not sure. Um, this, it seems that once you get in this office that your, your viewpoints change as speaker. So, you know, he, as, as they always say, we've come to this agreement. And then I, as I read the paper that we've come to this agreement and, and we have not come to this agreement. There's several of us that believe in, in fiscal responsibility, although some, some don't, they think right. we should just take, take and take. Congressman and, Congressman Tim Burchett of Tennessee, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. All right. The top U.S. diplomat faces a test today of how much influence the United States really has over its ally, Israel. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in Tel Aviv again today. He is meeting Israeli political and military leaders. His boss, President Biden, has strongly supported Israel since it came under attack by Hamas on October 7th. But Biden has also warned Israel to modify its campaign in Gaza to reduce civilian casualties and think about the future. NPR international affairs correspondent Jackie Northam is in Israel 
hi there, Jackie. Morning, Steve. What's on Blinken's agenda? Well, Blinken said this morning he'll meet with families of some of the more than 100 people who remain hostage in Gaza after being captured by Hamas at the start of this war. But for most of the day, he's going to be in closed-door meetings with key political leaders here, and that includes Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, He'll sit down with Israel's war cabinet, and then he's going to have a one-on-one meeting with the defense chief here, Yoav Gallant. And, you know, Steve, we'll hear more about these discussions later on in the day um, from Blinken when he talks to the press. But he has said for some time that the U.S. wants more humanitarian aid to reach Gaza. And the U.S. is pushing Israel and regional leaders to focus on the future of the enclave once the war is over. The U.S. is also doing what it can to ensure the conflict doesn't spread throughout the region beyond Gaza. And uh, Blinken is expected to push Israeli leaders to ease up on the aerial bombardment of Gaza, which has killed more than 22,000 people so far. And that's according to the health ministry in Gaza. Um, Jackie, I can't help but notice your phrasing there. He has said for some time that Israel should modify Mm -hmm. its campaign in Gaza. Have the Israelis been responsive? Partially, the Israelis announced last week they were pulling back some troops from the north and would concentrate their efforts in the south of Gaza. And that, perhaps, is a result of U.S. pressure. Uh, The Israelis say they're entering a different phase of the war, but they don't really say exactly what that means. But, you know, Steve, as far as ensuring the war doesn't become a regional conflict, that's the real focus of Blinken's visit here. You know, there's been increased fighting along the Israel-Lebanon border between Iran-backed Hezbollah fighters and Israel. And Prime Minister Netanyahu has said the Israeli military would do everything to restore security in that area. And he said he prefer it wouldn't be done with a full-on war with Hezbollah, but he also said that it, you know, it wouldn't deter Israel from doing what it feels necessary to secure uh, Israel's northern border. Okay, so multiple questions here. One is the way to conduct the war inside Gaza. The second is how to avoid a war in the north. Um, what about the, the, the future when the war is over? Oh, yeah, there are real differences here. Uh, Blinken met with a number of leaders from the Persian Gulf states and Turkey before he arrived here in Israel and says they all agreed to consider participating and contributing to this so-called day-after scenario. So if that's right, this is a step forward because none of these nations on Blinken's previous trips to the region wanted to talk about Gaza's future until the war is over. Of course, any planning will have to have buy-in from Israel and the Palestinians. And Netanyahu is opposed to the concept of a two-state solution. That's something the U.S. still firmly believes in. So there's going to be some challenging discussions there. Where does he go next? Wednesday, he heads off to the occupied West Bank. He'll meet with President of the Palestinian Authority, Mahmoud Abbas. And then Stevie heads to Egypt to see President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi. And the Egyptians are key here. They control Gaza's southern border. NPR's Jackie Northam is in Israel. Jackie, thanks so much. Good talking with you. Thanks, Steve. This is NPR News. Thanks for starting your Tuesday with 90.9 WBUR. Tonight at 7, Boston Mayor Michelle Wu delivers her State of the City address. Listen live at 7 on 90.9 WBUR as she looks back and lays out her vision for the year ahead. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, the shakeup in the Florida Republican Party after an investigation of its chairman for sexual assault. It's 719. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov. And MathWorks. 
creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design. Accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science. MathWorks.com. Hey, it's A. Martinez from Morning Edition. Waking up your body every morning is hard enough, so why not make waking up your mind easier? Every morning, we bring you the latest news and headlines, plus a little something to make you smile, think, maybe even laugh, so you can get those neurons fired up for the day ahead. So wake up your brain with us. Listen to Morning Edition from NPR News every weekday. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. It'll grow overcast today and we'll have highs in the upper 30s. A storm moves in around mid-afternoon, first possibly bringing snow around late afternoon. Then rain is likely this evening. It could be heavy at times and there will also be gusty winds. The showers and high winds will probably last into tomorrow morning and temperatures will rise to the low 50s. Then cloudy skies gradually clear by the afternoon and it falls to the mid-40s. It's 28 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Workday. With AI at the core of its system, Workday is committed to delivering continuous innovation to help teams stay agile. Workday, the finance and HR system for a changing world. From Procter & Gamble, maker of ZQuil Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. From Cunard, offering travelers an opportunity to voyage aboard Cunard's Queen Elizabeth to Alaska. Guests can explore ports and scenic cruising through Glacier Bay National Park with locally sourced cuisine. More at cunard.com. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Our friends at NPR Music have been asking which exciting new albums we should look forward to in 2024. We listened in on a conversation between three contributors recently. We're going to start with editor Hazel Sills. She mentioned Slater Kinney's new album, Little Rope. And there's a devastating backstory behind how two of the band's founding members created this new music. In the fall of 2022, Carrie Brownstein learned that her mother and her stepfather had been killed in a car accident while they were vacationing in Italy. Um, and Corin Tucker had previously been listed as Brownstein's emergency contact on a passport form, who then had to relay to her that the Italian embassy, you know, was looking for her. And so some of this album had already been written, but, you know, the kind of tragedy, this intense tragedy that Brownstein and Tucker had both kind of experienced in different ways began to seep its way into the recording of this album. And, you know, I've heard this album in full, and it is such a fierce, intense record. That song, Untidy Creature, it's the first they wrote for the album, and it's such like a soaring, like heavy track. The band has said over the course of writing the album that the track sort of became like somewhere to put their darkest fears and deepest hopes, and I think you can really hear that. Look at me like a problem to solve, like an untidy creature that you can't 
That album is coming out January 19th. Our editor Sheldon Pierce is looking forward to another album, King Perry. It's a posthumous release from the superstar Jamaican producer Lee Scratch Perry. Lee Scratch Perry was as essential to the development and expansion of Jamaican music as any other artist. Mm. Um, whether in his band The Upsetters or in the studio, he built in his backyard the Black Ark. Uh, he was a prolific and also eccentric artist who sort of never stopped testing the limits of his sound. And, you know, that continued up until his death uh, in 2021. Uh, in the few days of the pandemic, he sort of wrote and recorded this which is being billed as his final album so mm. uh, they don't they don't seem to be intending to let anything else go In this sort of last artistic statement, Perry wanted to push dub music famous for its sort of stripped down rhythm and bass sound, its chopped, overdubbed vocals. He's known for remixing a lot of songs, sort of reinventing them, transforming them, mutilating them in some cases. <laughs> um, what reggae was before his influence and after are two entirely different things in trying to push it in a new direction for his final iteration. He worked with the producer Daniel Boyle. Listening to the record, it's sort of exciting to hear an artist at his age, a legend, with nothing left to prove, still trying to reimagine this thing that he helped create. And he just continues, even in his final breaths, to try to think of the next iteration of this thing, how it can be even bigger than the thing that he created. Talking about Lee Scratch Perry there, whose posthumous release comes out February 2nd. And finally, here is the host of All Songs Considered, Robin Hilton. On February 2nd, there's a new Britney Howard album uh, that I'm very excited about. Of course, she's best known for fronting the band Alabama Shakes, you know, which actually Alabama Shakes, they haven't had an album out in nearly a decade. Her first solo album, Britney Howard's first solo album, came out almost five years ago. It was called Jamie. That was in 2019. So I was very excited uh, when her new one, What Now, uh, was announced just this last fall. This is one of those songs that's like immediately, oh hell yeah. I mean, like the second it, you hit play on it, just incredible. You know, I think reinvention and big swings were both recurring themes of 2023. And um, from what I've heard so far of the Britney Howard record, it, it sounds like she's absolutely doing the same, you know. I think there were, if you listen to Jamie, there were inklings of uh, the direction she was headed in. You know, I, I don't think you listen to this new record and it's like a colossal surprise or left turn for her, but just more evolved, you know. Her sound is getting a little bit bigger. The grooves are, are so deep. Um, you know, it's just bold and fearless and a big sound. Um, I just absolutely love it. Uh, to me, Jamie was such a personal statement mm. for Brittany Howard. 
uh, so deeply invested in her story, uh, so close to the vest. It, it felt like she was making an album that she's sort of been carefully holding on to for years. Listening to some of the songs on this new record, it feels like having the opportunity to set that aside has really opened her up and, and allowed her to explore the full range of her sound. I can hear that kind of freedom that you're talking about, Sheldon, in the music that she's making now. It seems like she's fully transcended the Alabama Shakes sound and style and can kind of, you know, really express more sides of her personality and more sides of her, you know, musical approach, like, on her own terms. That was Hazel Sills, Sheldon Pierce, and Robin Hilton, all with NPR Music. And you can hear their whole conversation with lots of other upcoming albums on the podcast, All Songs Considered. That episode drops today. And this is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 7.50 on WBUR's Morning Edition, how a meeting between bored friends in Denver became a 50-year-old institution called the Colorado Blind Bowling Association. It's 7.29. If you're working on your fitness in the new year, join us at City Space on Monday, January 29th for a boxing night featuring strength training and shadow boxing paired with hip-hop and house music. Tickets are at WBUR events. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org/learning. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Nearly every state in the U.S. is under some type of weather advisory, watch, or warning today. NPR's Giles Snyder says much of the West and Midwest is expecting snow, while high winds and heavy rains are forecast along the East Coast. New York's governor is warning of power outages and flash flooding caused by heavy rain and strong winds. In Seattle, a blizzard warning is in effect for the first time in more than a decade. Whiteout conditions also possible at times in parts of Iowa, and the potential for blizzard conditions extends into the Oklahoma panhandle, southeastern Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, and Florida, all under a tornado watch. United Airlines says loose bolts were found during inspections of its 737 MAX 9 aircraft. The planes were grounded and checks ordered after a door plug was blown out on an Alaska Airlines flight over the weekend. Jennifer Hamandy is chair of the National Transportation Safety Board. We are aware of the reports of that are coming back from the inspections from United and Alaska and Boeing. Our team is collecting that information, and there will be some follow-up from the inspections. She was speaking in Portland. Alaska Airlines says its inspections also found some loose hardware visible on some of its MAX 9 737s. This is NPR News from Washington. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. The Massachusetts Department of Revenue reports that sales tax collections have fallen below predictions for six straight months. 
That kind of slide can sometimes be a sign of an economic slowdown. But economist Alan Clayton Matthews isn't too worried. I don't think this is uh, reflecting an economy that's going into a recession. I think it's more reflective of just lower spending, at least temporarily, by people who have money. Clayton Matthews is an associate professor emeritus at Northeastern University. He notes unemployment remains low. Labor demand is still good. We're literally running out of workers in Massachusetts. Clayton Matthews believes the tax slowdown has more to do with other factors, like the end of stimulus payments and choppy financial markets. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu has a new plan to tackle the housing crisis in the city. She wants to work with the Boston Planning and Development Agency on changes to zoning that allow for more housing. The changes would allow more housing projects to go up without special approval. City officials tell the Boston Globe Wu is likely to discuss more of the plan at her State of the City address tonight. We'll have live coverage of that beginning at 7 p.m. New Hampshire's attorney general has issued a cease and desist order to the National Democratic Committee. That's because the National Party described the upcoming New Hampshire presidential primary as, quote, meaningless. It recognizes the South Carolina primary as the first in the nation. New Hampshire's attorney general claims the characterization amounts to voter suppression. It's 733. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Welch and Forbes. Over 180 years of experience providing trustee services for individuals and families. WelchForbes.com. The Bruins began a road trip with a loss last night. They fell to the Colorado Avalanche 4-3 in a shootout. The Bees will visit the Arizona Coyotes tonight. The Celtics lost to the Pacers 133-131 last night in Indianapolis. They'll be back home tomorrow to play the Minnesota Timberwolves. Clouds move in throughout the day today. We'll have highs in the mid-30s. A storm arrives late this afternoon, possibly bringing snow. Then rain is likely this evening. Showers could be heavy at times, and there will also be high winds, particularly along the coast. That'll continue overnight and through early tomorrow morning, and temperatures will rise to the low 50s. The rain tapers off around mid-morning tomorrow, and skies gradually clear as temperatures fall to the mid-40s. It's 28 degrees in Boston. You're with the WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Amgen, a biotechnology company working to fight the world's toughest diseases. In a new era of human health, Amgen is dedicated to accelerating the pace of change to push beyond what's known today. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at AlignProbiotics.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. The Republican Party of Florida has ousted its chairman, Christian Ziegler. The police are investigating him over an allegation of sexual assault. Tristan Wood with WFSU says a new head of the party has already been named. The writing has been on the wall for Ziegler since statements in a heavily redacted police report became public in November. It details accusations of sexual assault and battery against a woman with whom he and his wife, Moms for Liberty co-founder Bridget Ziegler, had previously engaged in a consensual sexual relationship. Ziegler denies the accusation. But Florida's top Republicans, including Governor Ron DeSantis, have been unified in calling for Ziegler's removal. I don't see how he can continue 
with that investigation ongoing, given the gravity of those situations. And so I think that he should, I think he should step aside. I think he should tend to that. He's innocent until proven guilty, but we just can't have a party chair that is under that type of scrutiny. Ziegler refused to resign until he was officially given the boot. That happened on Monday in a closed door meeting of the state party. Vice Chair Evan Power was selected to take his place. Power says his selection will help quiet outside noise and position Republicans for a successful election year. The Republican Party is bigger than any one person, and we're ready to move forward, and we're going to continue winning because we're the conservative model of America. I think what we have is a, a unified Republican Party that's ready to continue the victories into 2024. But Democrats, like Florida House Minority Leader Fentries Driscoll, say this shakeup indicates otherwise. There are fractures in the Republican Party. They certainly don't have their stuff together right now. We certainly have ours together, and we're going to keep building power brick by brick so that we can deliver for the people of Florida. It is unlikely that this will shift GOP voters to the Democratic Party, but with DeSantis and former President Donald Trump both running for president, rifts have grown amongst the state's GOP officials. Most state legislators are lined up behind the governor, while Florida's national representatives are backing Trump. That internal party turmoil likely won't slow the Republican Party's state momentum. Their voter registration lead over Democrats grew to over half a million in 2023. For NPR News, I'm Tristan Wood. The state of Wyoming finished 2023 at the top of the list for its suicide rate which is the subject of this next story. The popularity of guns has made it hard for mental health professionals trying to prevent suicides. NPR's Kirk Sigler reports on how they're responding. Shortly after Christina Williams' fiancé died last spring, her daughters came to her crying. They said they missed their dad. It got to be too much. I couldn't handle my grief and my girl's grief at the same time. She made a plan, as grief counselors call it, to take her life that day. But by chance, a couple hours later, stopped at a light on Del Range Boulevard in Cheyenne, she saw Live Health, a newly opened mental health urgent care clinic. Honestly, I seen the sign and I Googled it and it just happened to be at a really bad time in my life. Williams drove in without an appointment and was seen immediately by a crisis clinician and a psychiatric nurse practitioner. She then agreed to check herself into the hospital. Sarai Guerrero-Vasquez was working that day. It's standard protocol to ask where the guns are at home. I mean, if they're disclosing any type of suicidal thoughts, active or passive, whatever it might be, my first question is like, what firearms do you own at home? How are they secured? Fortunately, Christina Williams had already given her gun to her best friend when she experienced feelings of suicide. But Guerrero Vasquez says some patients actually resist getting more treatment because they're afraid their guns will be confiscated. And I always assure them, I'm like, I'm just a social worker. I'm not going to go into your house and take anything. I just want to make sure that you stay safe. And, you know, if that means having your parents or a family member, neighbor, secure them for a little bit until you go through this bump, like... Life will resume. This is the reality of suicide prevention work in a state with one of the highest gun ownership rates in the nation. Emily Lose, who came up with the idea to open this urgent care, is CEO of Live Health. 
we've had to get very creative because, of course, the police can't go and remove someone's firearm. She's referring to red flag laws that have been effective in other states, including next door in Colorado, where a judge can temporarily remove guns from people in crisis. Now, this would probably never pass in Wyoming. So here you talk about safe gun storage, never gun control. In the lobby next to the requisite doctor's office magazines, Los is restocking a basket full of gun safety locks. I mean, we probably fill this basket every couple of weeks. People take them. If um, we're worried about impulsivity, you can put the key somewhere, you know, put it up high where you have to really work to get it to. Sometimes we'll talk to people about that. If they're hesitant about giving up their firearm, we'll talk to them about making it harder to access it within the home. Unlike, say, intentional drug overdoses, suicide by firearm is almost always lethal. Here in Laramie County, which includes the capital, Cheyenne, guns are used in 85% of suicides. At Cheyenne's hospital, Brittany Wardle runs the suicide prevention program where she works with local employers, schools, and veterans, pushing mental health awareness and safe storage. I think some days it feels very overwhelming because you think, if we didn't have firearms to worry about, what would suicide look like here in Wyoming? But she says we'll probably never know that. There are a few topics more polarizing in the cowboy state than guns. Firearms accessibility and availability in Wyoming isn't likely going to change for us. So we need to figure out how to move around it. How to move and the new it. mental health urgent care in Cheyenne is one way. These have been popping up across the country since 2020. Patient numbers at Live Health are up 171% since it opened a year ago. Clinician Sarai Guerrero Vasquez says people in crisis can't wait for a doctor's visit. Yeah, to get on somebody's calendar, it's anywhere from like three to six months for therapy. Yeah, and then for psychiatry, it's like six month wait usually. And care can be hard to get to. Roads close all the time for wind or blizzards. And then there's the culture. Christina Williams, the patient we heard at the beginning of this story, describes growing up in Wyoming this way. It's kind of just cowgirl up. You just hide everything down low and you don't talk about it. She says she's hanging on the best she can. She's been doing regular counseling for months. I feel like I'm going in the right way and I feel like they're helping me in the right way. Staff are helping her see she's not alone. And her best friend, she's still storing her gun. Kirk Sigler, NPR News, Cheyenne, Wyoming. If you, or someone you know, may be considering suicide, or is in crisis, you can call or text three numbers, 988, to reach the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. NPR News. Coming up at the top of the hour here on WBUR's Morning Edition, a federal appeals court hears arguments today about whether Donald Trump is immune from federal prosecution for alleged attempts to overthrow the election. Upper 30s today, and it'll slowly grow overcast before WBUR meteorologist Daniel Noyce says a big storm arrives. 
Rain arrives in Boston around or just after 5 p.m. this evening. It'll start as a brief burst of snow along and outside of 495, where a coating to 2 inches falls before the changeover. Otherwise, it rains hard overnight tonight. Downpours, embedded thunder possible, a widespread 1 to 3 inches of rain with localized flooding. Rain ends 6 to 7 a.m. tomorrow morning. Just a passing shower after that. The wind is going to be howling, too. Numerous gusts, 40 to 50 miles per hour, including for the city. Gust to 60 along the immediate coast of Cape Ann, the South Shore, and Cape Cod. There'll be scattered outages and damage. The worst wind from midnight to 6 a.m. and will be mild in the 50s before falling into the 40s tomorrow afternoon. It's 28 degrees in Boston. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Feldman Geospatial, committed to helping Boston build right from the ground up since 1946, and working to build community with Jazz Night, presenting live music weekly at the Long Live Brewery and Taproom in Boston. Learn more at longlivebeerworks.com Boston. Dana-Farber Cancer Institute says its plans for a new hospital will increase competition and meet the growing need for care. The Boston Globe reports it just made its first official pitch to state regulators. They need to sign off on the $1.7 billion project. Last year, Dana-Farber announced it was ending its partnership with Brigham and Women's Hospital and starting a new one with Beth Israel Deaconess. A national high-end ice cream chain is expanding into the Boston area. Van Leeuwen Ice Cream plans to open locations in the Seaport, Chestnut Hill, and Harvard Square. Opening dates haven't been set. The chain got its start in New York back in 2010. It's 7.44. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Kauffman Foundation. Providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kaufman.org. And from the Walton Family Foundation, working to create access to opportunity for people and communities by tackling tough social and environmental problems. More information is at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Leila Faldil. Do the holidays feel like a distant memory already? Are you back to dealing with nonstop email or Slack messages? If you're hoping 2024 could be the year you put your health before your inbox, then listen closely. Manoush Zamarodi is the host of NPR's TED Radio Hour and a special series called Body Electric, which is all about how our bodies are adapting to our technology. Throughout the fall, she kept us updated on her reporting, but now she's back with something called the Body Electric Challenge. Hey, Manoush. Hey, Layla. Okay, so I'm ready. What's the challenge? So you might recall a few months back, we invited you and your listeners to join our study with Columbia University Medical Center to see if we could add prescribed doses of movement breaks into our lives. Over 20,000 people signed up, and for thousands of them, it made a huge difference in how they felt both mentally and physically these movement breaks work, and we learned a lot about what helped those listeners succeed. So now we have taken those preliminary findings, we have added more reporting, and we've got a new invitation. Take the Body Electric Challenge. Do it as a two-week jumpstart for a healthier year, or if you were part of the study back in the fall, this is going to help keep you going. Okay, so you say these movement breaks made a huge difference. Let's just remind people what we mean 
by a movement break. I mean, we're not talking five-mile run here, are we? No. We ask people to take pretty gentle, about two miles an hour, so not fast, five-minute walking or marching breaks every half hour, every hour, or every two hours of sitting time. Because regular movement during periods of prolonged sitting can improve your glucose levels, your blood pressure, and your mental health. We saw it with our participants, Layla. They reported an average of 25% less fatigue. They felt more positive and energized. And this is the best part. Surprisingly, people said they actually felt more engaged with their work, and they did a better job when they took these breaks. Okay, so it sounds like this really made a difference, and it's a pretty simple way to break our sedentary habits. So was it hard for people to actually stick with? I mean, it is actually hard to make time consistently for regular movement breaks. But here's the thing, Layla. Those people who did succeed... It just got better and better for them. The people who stuck with it for two weeks told stories about how the habit got easier and made them feel better. Here's one listener, Yeni Salinas, describing her experience. It feels counterintuitive to take those breaks, but it's not. And so it further has brought to light for me how conditioned I've been to prioritize work and productivity over everything else. The five-minute interruptions is nothing compared to the benefits that I'm gaining from these movements. So you're not committing to some expensive gym membership. You're not going on a really restrictive diet, but it is a lifestyle change. If someone listening is ready for this challenge, what should they do? Come give it a try. Go to npr.org slash bodyelectric. When you sign up, you'll get a one-page starter guide, and you can also listen to the series, which now includes new episodes. Okay, I'm going to go sign up. Thanks, Manoush. Manoush Zamarodi is the host of the NPR series Body Electric and NPR's TED Radio Hour. Manoush, should we take a movement break? Let's do it. (laughs) I'm going. (laughs) This is NPR News. Tonight at 7, Boston Mayor Michelle Wu delivers her State of the City address. Listen live at 7 on 90.9 WBUR as she looks back and lays out her vision for the year ahead. Coming up at 8.20 on WBUR's Morning Edition, the University of Maryland recently polled Americans about the Trump indictment, Zionism and anti-Semitism, and the war in Ukraine. Researchers will explain what they learned. It's 7.50. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BU's Center for Professional Education, Certificates in Real Estate Studies. Stay current and competitive by earning a certificate in commercial real estate, facilities management, and real estate finance. Classes begin the week of January 22nd. Sign up at bu.edu slash professional. Since I've set up the Legacy Gift, I feel like a real member of WBUR's family in a big way. And that makes me feel really good. Build a strong future for WBUR. Learn how at wbur.org legacy. The people who entertain us, the world in all its wonder, the ideas that spark creativity, joy and inspiration every day on All Things Considered from NPR News. From 4 to 6.30 on WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Tuesday morning. A federal appeals court today considers whether former President Donald Trump is immune from federal prosecution over alleged attempts to overthrow the last election. 
After a Boeing 737 MAX 9 plane saw a sealed door fly off during a flight last week, two airlines are reporting loose parts on some of their planes of that type. And a U.S. citizen has been arrested on drug charges in Russia amid rising tensions between the U.S. and Russia over Ukraine. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Medical Center, modeling a new kind of excellence in healthcare built on clinical expertise and equity. Learn more about rewriting healthcare at bmc.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Stephen Skeep. The civil war fought between Taiwan and China over the last century has never officially ended. The two still maintain tight connections through culture, though. Pop culture, NPR's Emily Fang reports. China's leader Xi Jinping repeatedly hints at a military invasion of Taiwan. And at the same time, the people of China consume huge amounts of Taiwanese music and film. It's a cultural entanglement mirroring their long history of migration and, yes, war. It's an entanglement in which Taiwan, a tiny island of just 23 million people, has outsized leverage. They started way earlier, at a period where China was basically shut off from the world. This is Giselle Ko, the founder of Asian Pop Weekly, a music outlet on Asia. Taiwan is where megastar Mandarin singers like Teresa Tang took off, enrapturing a generation of Chinese. And in more recent years, Taiwan superstar Jay Cho and fans like Mayday provide a ubiquitous soundtrack in movies and TV dramas in China. Since the 1980s, people in China, sometimes at great risk, listened to purloined cassettes and later CDs of Taiwanese artists. And for a lot of them now, it reminds them of like their childhood. It's very nostalgic for them. And now Taiwanese artists are routinely in the top 50 charts in China. Among the Taiwanese artists popular in China is this band, The Chairs, from Taipei. And they've picked up a cult following in China after starring in a reality show there called The Big Band. Kind of like China's American Idol, but for up-and-coming groups. NPR met The Chairs in 2022 in Beijing. Here's their manager, Yi Huang. He said he and his bandmates had done more than 100 total days of COVID quarantine in 2022. This was when China was in the middle of the pandemic. But China is a much bigger market than Taiwan, and it's where a lot of their fans are. Our fans in China are so warm-hearted. They set up chat groups and sometimes are even able to learn news about our band before I find out. Through the connections they've built through music, Huang said the band feels none of the tensions between China and Taiwan. The Taiwanese presence runs very deep in China. Many of the larger Taiwanese recording labels have collaborations in China. Obviously, lots of Taiwanese perform here. The cooperation on selling music rights is very close. But this decades-long entanglement is starting to change. There's more competition from Korean and homegrown Chinese artists. And then there's the cross-strait tensions. In January, Mayday, the Taiwanese superband, was investigated for lip-syncing in China. Taiwanese officials say it's because Beijing wants the band to be more pro-China. Weining Huang co-founded one of Taiwan's biggest music festivals, Lukefest. And she says younger Taiwanese artists are not as keen to go to China. Some Taiwanese young artists don't feel safe going there. 
because they probably already say something on social media, and some of them like have very strong political views. There's been instances where Chinese fans have named and shamed artists for appearing too pro-Taiwan. They've even boycotted and banned them from performing, and that's got some bands rethinking how tied up they want to be with the Chinese market. Bands like Prairie. They're an experimental rock band. Their vocalist Yi Zhi says more of their fellow musicians are explicitly critical of China. A good half of Taiwanese bands now are willing to express their political views and values. Before 2014, many bands didn't dare talk about politics. 2014. That was when Taiwan saw mass protests against closer trade ties with China. And so China is no longer the ultimate destination for Taiwanese artists. I met it again with the chairs a few weeks ago. This time in Taiwan, they were promoting their new album, which is mostly in English. Their lead singer Yong Jing said it was eye-opening to tour in Europe and the U.S. last year. We hope to reach out to different communities in addition to the Chinese-speaking world. And their ambitions are growing alongside their fame from Taiwan to China and now beyond. Emily Fang and Pure News, Taipei, Taiwan. Many parts of the U.S. have escaped heavy rain and snow this winter. That is about to change. A parade of weather systems is crossing the country this week, thanks to cold air over the Pacific, meeting warming air from the Gulf of Mexico. Professor Cliff Mast teaches atmospheric science at the University of Washington. It'll form a series of storms over the Midwest, which will then move to the Northeast, which will bring very stormy conditions to the eastern part of the United States. At the National Weather Service Weather Prediction Center, Greg Carbon says much of the country is already seeing it. High wind warnings across much of the South and Eastern United States. Blizzard warnings in effect from the Cascades in the Pacific Northwest to the High Plains in the Central U.S. Winter storm warnings across the Great Lakes region. Even flood warnings in effect for some areas of the Mid Atlantic, along the Appalachians, and even on the Gulf Coast. You can almost picture these guys gesturing across the map of the United States as they talk. Andrew Kozak is a meteorologist for CBS News Philadelphia. So, in the Philadelphia area, if you live in an area that is prone to flooding, street flooding, especially under passes or sometimes just low-lying areas, or even across areas like the Schuylkill, that flood, prepare now. Know that those routes that you would normally take are probably going to be flooded out. And if you're not sure how deep that puddle might be, Kozak says, do not drive through it. Every year we see water rescues. We always say, "Turn around, don't drown." People always try to go through flooded streets and not realizing how little water can actually carry a car away. But Kozak says, even if the weather is unnerving, a forecaster's job is not to scare people. I think everybody just needs to be aware that we're going to have days like this, and that's why we're here to keep you guys safe and informed and.、Uh, Get through these big systems as they come in one after another. In this country, people are divided over many things, but the weather does not pick sides. We're all in this one together.
This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lexus Broadway in Boston, presenting Girl from the North Country, playing in Boston this March. Written and directed by Connor McPherson, this new musical reimagines the songs of Bob Dylan, including Forever Young, Slow Train Coming, Like a Rolling Stone, and Make You Feel My Love. More at LexusBroadwayInBoston.com. I'm On Point executive producer Jonathan Dyer, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in Tel Aviv for talks about Gaza's future. He says four Arab nations and Turkey have agreed to help rebuild the region. It's Tuesday, January 9th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, Donald Trump is expected to argue in court today that he can't be prosecuted for crimes he allegedly committed while president. Prosecutors say these arguments by Trump were the appeals court to buy them would give presidents a license to commit crimes while in the White House. Also, a mistake on federal forms may cost millions of students some of their financial aid. And this hour, Vermont is seeing a record-breaking number of fatal opioid overdoses. The tragedy is we've accepted this as sort of part of life as opposed to attacking it with everything that we have. Increasingly cloudy today in the 40s and a big rain and windstorm moves in tonight. It's 8.01, now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Multiple winter storms are lashing the U.S. There are blizzard conditions in the Pacific Northwest, including Seattle. The National Weather Service says a tornado is tearing through part of the Florida panhandle and moving north into Georgia. And the East Coast will get bombarded with significant rain today from Florida's Atlantic coast up to Maine. New Jersey is about to get hit with its second winter storm in three days. Bruce Conviser reports New Jersey's governor has declared a state of emergency. The storm could dump up to four inches of rain on the Garden State over the next two days. The rain will be accompanied by strong winds and even tornadoes are possible. It's a recipe for down power lines and power failures. Coastal flooding is likely, as are flash floods inland, where rivers are apt to overflow their banks. The northern half of the state was blanketed by snow over the weekend, and more than a foot buried the northwest corner. With temperatures soaring into the 50s today, a rapid snow melt will only heighten the flood risks. Governor Phil Murphy's state of emergency goes into effect this afternoon. For NPR News, I'm Bruce Conviser in Greenbrook, New Jersey. Both United Airlines and Alaska Airlines say they've discovered loose parts on some of their Boeing 737 MAX 9 planes. These were grounded after part of an Alaska Airlines jet's fuselage separated during flight last week. NPR's Giles Snyder tells us Boeing's CEO is holding a company-wide safety meeting today. In an email announcing the meeting to Boeing employees over the weekend, CEO Dave Calhoun said what happened Friday night must now be the company's focus. He said it's critical to work transparently with customers and regulators to ensure such accidents don't happen again. Calhoun is holding a webcast from the Boeing factory in Renton, Washington, where the MAX 9 jets are made. NPR's Giles Snyder reporting. A trial opens today in Georgia to consider whether touchscreen voting machines are constitutional. Election security activists allege the devices are vulnerable to interference. From member station WABE in Atlanta, Sam Greenglass prepared this report. 
This lawsuit began well before Dominion voting machines became a target of far-right conspiracy theories after the 2020 election. The plaintiffs have long asked the state to use hand-marked paper ballots, though U.S. District Judge Amy Todenberg has ruled she cannot order that. A 2022 federal report did find some security vulnerabilities in Georgia's voting software. The report uncovered no evidence they've been successfully exploited, though allies of former President Trump were indicted last year for accessing voting system software after the 2020 election. The Georgia Secretary of State's office says the state's election security practices are top tier. For NPR News, I'm Sam Greenglass in Atlanta. This is NPR. The University of Michigan has won the national championship in college football in last night's game in Houston. It's the first time that's happened in 25 years. Steve Futterman reports the top-ranked Wolverines defeated number two Washington 34 to 13. When the game ended, I can't believe it. For the first time since the 1997 season, the Michigan Wolverines are on top of the college football world, and fans like Adam Jablonski let loose. It's great to be. A Michigan Wolverine, it's great. Michigan never trailed in the game, cruising to a 21-point win. Head coach Jim Harbaugh talked about now being able to join his father and brother who have previously coached championship teams. I can now sit at the big person's table. They won't keep me over there on the, on the little table anymore. Despite the celebration, Michigan continues to be under scrutiny for possible rule violations. Harbaugh said after the game, the team is innocent, but it's possible this part of the story isn't over. For NPR News, I'm Steve Futterman at the National Championship game in Houston. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in Israel today for talks with leaders. The U.S. wants Israel to cut back on its attacks in Gaza. Health authorities in Gaza say more than 23,000 Palestinians have been killed since the start of the war, mostly women and children. A Russian court says an American has been arrested in Russia on drug charges. A statement released today, but dated from over the weekend, says Robert Woodland will be held for two months for the investigation. He is accused of possession of illegal drugs. I'm Corva Coleman, NPR News in Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. The city of Boston is planning to use space over public properties like libraries to build affordable apartments. But a project near downtown and Mass General comes at a steep price for taxpayers. WBUR's Simone Rios explains. A rebuilt West End library will hold more than books. Developers are planning a 12-story tower above it with 119 apartments for people with low to moderate incomes. The rental units are expected to cost $835,000 each to build. That's nearly $200,000 more than apartments planned over libraries in Chinatown and Dorchester. Nonprofit developer Roger Brown says his West End units will bring affordability to a high-cost area. If we want to be successful moving into the next century and beyond, we've got to think about how we make everybody part of the fabric of the city. Critics say the city should focus on building in more cost-effective parts of Boston. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simone Rios. The interim president of Harvard is expressing sorrow over how he came into the position. In a letter sent yesterday, Alan Garber said the resignation of Claudine Gay gave him, quote, a feeling of loss. Gay stepped down as president last week over plagiarism allegations. Garber also urged the community to come together to bridge divisions.
More than a dozen cities across the Northeast recorded their hottest year ever in 2023. In Boston, it was the third hottest on record with the average temperature two degrees above normal. Temperatures were near or above normal for almost every month in 2023. That's consistent with a decades-long stretch of above-normal temperatures in the region. Art Digatano is the director of the NOAA Northeast Regional Climate Center. Compared to the long-term 20th century average, we have not seen a below-normal year since 1997. So that is a long time. 2023 was also the hottest year on record across the globe. It's 8.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Deloitte. Unlocking innovation takes more than AI or cloud. It takes outcome-focused application, too. Learn more at Deloitte.com slash U.S. slash Engineering Advantage. The Celtics fell to the Pacers 133-131 to last night in Indianapolis. The Bruins lost to the Avalanche in a shootout. The final in Denver was 4-3. to Increasing clouds this morning. It'll be near 40. A storm starts moving in this afternoon. It'll begin as some snow outside of 490 before changing over to rain. We'll get heavy rain overnight with strong winds, especially right along the coast. The storm moves out early tomorrow morning. It'll eventually turn mostly sunny with temperatures in the 50s early, then falling into the 40s. It's 28 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Stephen Skeep. Today, a federal appeals court hears arguments over one of the indictments of former President Trump. The court considers whether the United States can prosecute an ex-president for acts committed in office. Lawyers for Trump claim he has immunity. If the court agreed, that would prevent a trial he is facing for his efforts to overturn his election defeat. NPR Justice correspondent Kerry Johnson has been following the case. Kerry, good morning. Good morning, Steve. I'm just trying to remember, uh, former President Trump was impeached for his efforts to overturn the election and for the January 6th attack on the Capitol. And at the time, some of his defenders in the U.S. Senate said, this is not a matter for impeachment. If he violated the law, you can prosecute him afterward. How did we get to the point now where his lawyers are saying you can't prosecute him afterward? Yeah, Trump's attorneys are making the argument that to prosecute him now for virtually the same conduct after January 6th would amount to a violation of the principle of double jeopardy. Of course, uh, prosecutors say that's simply wrong. They point to statements from Senator Mitch McConnell, a Republican from Kentucky, and others who said at the time of the impeachment that it was up to the justice system to decide what to do with Donald Trump. And another key argument Trump is going to be making is that he's immune from prosecution. He enjoys blanket immunity because what he did before and after January 6, 2021 were official actions while he was president in the White House. Oh, interesting. I guess that raises the question first of whether it's an official action and second, whether you can prosecute for an official action. What do prosecutors say? Prosecutors say these arguments by Trump were the appeals court to buy them would be really sweeping and would even undermine the democracy, give presidents a license to commit crimes while in the White House. Special counsel Jack Smith mentioned crimes like accepting bribes for directing government contracts or selling nuclear secrets to a foreign adversary. Of course, no former president has ever been charged with a federal crime. Donald Trump is the first. So this is going to be a landmark case whichever way the appeals court rules. Granting that, is there any history that gives us any guide here? Yeah, the special counsel points out that Richard Nixon got a pardon from President Ford and that pardons involve some acceptance or acknowledgement of 
criminal wrongdoing. The Supreme Court has ruled in the past that presidents have some shield from civil liability like money damages, but that must relate to something in their work as the president. And the Justice Department says Trump was acting like a political candidate when he tried to cling to power in 2020 and 2021, not like a president. Okay, so we don't really know if there's going to be a trial until we know how the courts rule on this question, and yet there is a trial scheduled. So how do things stand? Yeah, the trial was supposed to start on March 4th, the day before Super Tuesday, but it's on hold for now while we wait for a ruling from the appeals court. If this three-judge panel acts quickly and agrees with prosecutors, it's possible the trial could still happen with some short delays. But if Donald Trump asks the full appeals court to hear the case or takes it to the Supreme Court, the trial could really stall this year. That's important because of so many key political dates on the calendar, like the Republican convention in July. Prosecutors have been trying to work ahead and they've been filing lots of motions, but Trump hasn't wanted to accept them. Last week, he even tried to get a judge to punish prosecutors for doing that kind of work while the case is on pause. NPR's Kerry Johnson, thanks so much. My pleasure. President Biden's 2024 campaign message is coming into sharper focus after a speech in South Carolina. During a visit to Mother Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, Biden drew a connection between the racist murders of nine black churchgoers in 2015 and what his campaign asserts is an ongoing threat to democracy from the far right. The word of God was pierced by bullets and hate rage, propelled by not just gunpowder, but by a poison, poison that has for too long haunted this nation. What is that poison? White supremacy. Now, in the polls, many voters say they are most concerned about things like the cost of living, the economy in general, crime and border security. So why is the president focusing on the threat from extremism? We're going to ask Jamie Harrison that. He is the chair of the Democratic National Committee. He's a native of South Carolina who formerly led the Democratic Party and has run for office there. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. So President Biden talked a lot about the January 6th mob attack on the Capitol in his speech at Mother Emanuel. And he talked about how the former president... The Republican frontrunner now played a role in it. But the massacre in Charleston was in 2015. That's the year before Donald Trump was elected president. So what does one have to do with the other? Yeah, you know, the, the president's visit was also very personal. He attended services after the massacre at Mother Emanuel, uh, and he prayed with the parishioners there. There's a special bond that Joe Biden has between the black community and with him. that He understands the pain but he also understands the joy. And and part of his visit yesterday was about that connection. I understand that, but uh, what's the connection to Donald Trump per se? Well, well, the, the connection is that Donald Trump is a threat to, to that freedom. Uh, Donald Trump, a man who, uh, you know, remember the president got into this race because he said, we're battling for the soul of this nation. When he saw that the president of the United States They're saying that fine people are on both sides when talking about the hatred we saw in Charlottesville. Um, And so that hatred in Charlottesville was also just an extension of the hatred we saw in Mother Emanuel in terms of Confederate flag, in in terms of believing white supremacy in this nation. And folks who understand that battle for that type of freedom, the freedom to, to live the American dream, to be treated equally are the black folks, and particularly black folks in South Carolina, where 40% of enslaved people came into this country through that port of Charleston. Uh, And so the president was there 
uh, reconnecting with folks that who who have endured uh, so much pain, but what at the same time understood the joy uh, of coming together as a community. Do you think that that is a message that resonates with voters across? I would say age and experience who live different lives. I'm thinking here about the influential radio show and talk show host, Charlemagne the God, who says 2024 is a race between the cowards, the crooks, and the couch. And his argument here is that the couch is a viable opportunity for people who don't think that either candidate really speaks to their concerns, meaning that people can just stay home. Do you think that this is a message which resonates kind of across different groups who perhaps don't share uh, the, the president's life, life experiences or the experiences of a lot of the people who go to that church? Well, this is the thing. In terms of what impacted that church, young folks, old folks, and every everything in between were impacted by what happened there. The the, the racial animosity, racial hatred, um, uh, the 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 impact that racism still has knows no age, knows no bounds. I I think that resonates with everybody. Protesters interrupted the speech to draw Biden's attention to the uh, war in Hamas, Israel's war in Hamas, on Hamas. Listen to how that sounded. If you really care about the lives lost here, then you should honor the lives lost and call for a ceasefire in Palestine. And this is how the president responded. I understand their passion. And I've been quietly working. I've been quietly working with the Israeli government to get them to reduce and significantly get out of Gaza. Mr. Chairman, are you at all concerned that this anger about this quiet approach puts his reelection at risk? Well, the president's going to do what he believes is the right thing to do, not because it's the politically uh, politically uh, tested thing to do, but it's the right thing to do. You know, one of, one of the things that is really important for folks to understand is that you got to sometimes think about whether this harms your effort, whether it helps your effort. There are a lot of folks in that church, because remember, there are nine lives lost their lives in that church. Some of the elders in that church turned to me shortly after, and many of them were triggered by this incident, thinking that it was some incident of violence. And so we, we really, I think, for, for these type of efforts, you've got to think about it. You've got to think about the place you're doing it. Think about the time. But I thought the president... Uh, address the issue with, with the grace that he always does, with the empathy that he always does. He is doing the best that he can uh, to try to do the right thing in this situation. That's Jamie Harrison. He's the chair of the Democratic National Committee. And as we said, he's a native of South Carolina. Mr. Chairman, thanks so much for talking with us. Thanks so much for having me. The National Transportation Safety Board is asking why part of an Alaska Airlines jetliner blew out from the plane in mid-flight. Here's Kyra Buckley. Officials have recovered a major piece of the Boeing 737 MAX 9 that was torn from the body of the plane and fell into the backyard of a Portland area science teacher. It's called a door plug because it plugs the spot where an emergency exit door could go. The door plug now makes its way to the NTSB labs in Washington, D.C. Investigators hope to determine why a hole was ripped in the side of the plane, forcing an emergency landing 20 minutes later at Portland International Airport. No significant physical injuries have been reported among the 171 passengers and six crew. NTSB Chair Jennifer Homendy said all four flight attendants aboard described a chaotic scene where it was challenging to communicate. 
There's a lot of trauma that they are working through. It's going to be a long process. It was terrifying. Hamandi said as the airplane cabin lost pressure, the cockpit door flew open to the surprise of the crew. Investigators learned the door is designed to open during rapid decompression, but the crew on the flight out of Portland didn't know that at the time. After the incident Friday, federal regulators grounded all MAX 9 airplanes until they can be properly inspected. The two U.S. airlines that fly the planes, Alaska and United, have reported finding loose bolts on door plugs of other MAX 9 planes in recent days. Hamandi says investigators have not located the bolts from the torn-off door plug, but also don't know if that's what caused it to separate from the plane. It's going to take time, and we're going to have to analyze the components and the door plug in our lab to be able to figure out how this happened and why this happened. Hamandi said they also plan to look at data on cabin pressure and other controls on the aircraft. Overall, the investigation could take anywhere from 12 to 18 months. For NPR News in Portland, I'm Kyra Buckley. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. Thanks for starting your Tuesday with 90.9 WPUR. Coming up in 20 minutes on Morning Edition, we go to Burlington, Vermont, where city officials are taking steps to address a record-breaking number of fatal opioid overdoses. It's 820. I'm Scott Tong. Kids are skipping school more than they did pre-pandemic. Absenteeism has doubled by some measures. And some school districts are using old-school truant officers to find kids playing hooky. Is it working? Pay attention, class, next time here and now. Listen today at noon on 90.9 WBUR. It'll grow overcast today and we'll have highs in the upper 30s. A storm moves in around mid-afternoon, first possibly bringing snow around late afternoon. Then rain is likely this evening. It could be heavy at times and there will also be gusty winds. The showers and high winds will probably last into tomorrow morning and temperatures will rise to the low 50s. Then cloudy skies gradually clear by the afternoon and it falls to the mid-40s. It's 29 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Progressive. Progressive commercial insurance protects small businesses from retailers to tradespeople. Progressive covers a variety of business needs with a range of coverages. More at progressivecommercial.com. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at alignprobiotics.com. From BritBox with Archie, the man who became Cary Grant, a new original drama following the rise of a Hollywood icon. Archie, now streaming at BritBox.com NPR. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. At the start of this election year, Americans are taking stock of former President Donald Trump's indictments, the war in Ukraine, and the meanings of Zionism and anti-Semitism. A study analyzed the findings of several polls conducted by the University of Maryland together with the polling firm Ipsos. Lead author Shibli Telhami told me first how Trump's indictment over his handling of classified materials may have affected public perceptions of the former president. 
27% of all respondents said their views became less favorable compared to only 7% who said the views became more favorable. Is partisanship the main driver of people's perceptions of Donald Trump? Uh, Yeah, I think there's no question that you have a partisan divide. Even if you look at this particular poll, the particular indicator about more or less favorable views of him, it's typically you'd expect far more Republicans to say more favorable rather than less favorable. The fact that you have almost even number is really quite remarkable. What's remarkable about it? Uh, Because normally, uh, given how partisan American politics are, you'd expect that far more people would say more favorable than less favorable, even on something like this. And the shift in independence, uh, 29% less favorable to 5% more favorable is huge. So yes, it's partly partisan. There is something else going on here that is hurting him. How much is hurting him, we don't know. What did you find about how the Americans you surveyed thought about the way the former president has been treated by the justice system? That is the issue where more partisanship shows up, right? So you have two-thirds of Republicans say he's been treated worse than most people charged with similar alleged crimes. And while 59% of Democrats say he's been treated better than most people uh, charged with similar alleged crimes. Hmm. I want to turn now to another series of questions that you asked about Zionism and anti-Semitism. One of the findings that stood out to me was that most Americans were unfamiliar with the concept of Zionism, which I'm going to say is the nationalist movement that we trace to the 19th century advocating for a Jewish homeland. What do you make of that? The most interesting result is how many Americans, 62%, said they're either unfamiliar or they don't know enough to present an opinion on this issue. Hmm. And what about anti-Semitism? You did ask some questions about that. The big surprise to me in the answers about anti-Semitism is that even when you talk about it in expression as attitudes against Jews or attitudes against the Jewish religion, you still have almost a third, 31%, who don't know whether attitudes against Jews constitute anti-Semitism, and 36% say they don't know if if attitudes against Judaism and anti-Semitism. Over the years, I've been also measuring attitudes toward Muslims, and we find that Americans express more prejudice toward Islam as a religion than toward Muslims as people, it seems harder for people, uh, given sort of the American ethos, to express prejudice against other people, but easier to express prejudice against ideas or religions. So that, too, we found here. Not as much variation on this issue, by the way, across uh, partisan divide. Do you think that these attitudes are informing sort of public support for U.S. policies toward the Israeli war in Gaza. Democrats have become far more critical of Israel. And after the Hamas attack on October 7, there was a spike of sympathy the first couple of weeks with Israel. Uh, We found that much of that was lost a month later, especially among young Democrats who became far more critical of Israel than before. So before we let you go, Ukraine, obviously the other kind of big foreign policy issue for the United States, what I found most striking was the steady drop in support. To what do you attribute that? 
initially after Russia invaded Ukraine, we found a really strong spike of support across the board for Ukraine and for American support for Ukraine. May of 2022, uh, we found a drop. And then the polls were steady in the support for Ukraine between May and October of 2022. And then suddenly after October 2022, we found a beginning of a drop. We measured that last spring, spring of 2023, and in June in, uh, of 2023. And I think we see the same thing in the more recent poll that we've conducted in September, October of 2023. So the way I have looked at this is it's partly a function of partisanship because how it's playing out in our own politics, it became a partisan issue. And so therefore Republicans are going to be less supportive and increasingly more so as we get closer to the election. But early on, more Americans tended to think Russia is doing badly and Ukraine is doing well. And then it dragged on they became less supportive. And then there was a more reporting about really Ukraine is not making any advances in the war. It's harder than they thought. The war is going on. So you get a little bit dropped. So I think that idea, the partisanship of an election year, as well as an assessment of who's winning and who's losing, those two tend to tell the biggest story about the shift in public opinion on Ukraine. That is Shibli Tilhami. He's a professor at the University of Maryland. Professor Tilhami, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you for hosting me. This is NPR News. Tonight at 7, Boston Mayor Michelle Wu delivers her State of the City address. Listen live at 7 on 90.9 WBUR as she looks back and lays out her vision for the year ahead. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 8.45 on WBUR's Morning Edition. The Michigan Wolverines beat the Washington Huskies to win their first college football national championship since 1997. It's 8.29. WBUR supporters include Vertex, working for people with sickle cell and genetic kidney diseases, cystic fibrosis, and more. Medical, regulatory, and other careers at vrtx.com. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is holding a series of meetings today in Israel. It marks his fourth trip to the Middle East since Hamas militants attacked southern Israel on October 7th. Blinken's latest trip includes meetings with the families of some of those still being held by Hamas. He spoke earlier today alongside Israel's foreign minister. We have to get through this very challenging moment. Uh, 
ensure that October 7th can never happen again uh, and uh, work to build uh, a much different and much better future. Blinken is also expected to discuss getting more humanitarian aid into Gaza and what it will look like after the war. Former President Donald Trump is expected to appear in a federal courthouse in Washington, D.C. today. An appeals court is scheduled to hear arguments on whether Trump is immune from prosecution on charges stemming from his efforts to overturn the results of the 2020 election. At issue is whether an ex-president can be prosecuted for acts committed while still in the White House. High winds are expected today from Texas to New England as stormy weather moves across the U.S. Heavy rains are expected along the East Coast. Snow will be the issue today in much of the West and Midwest, including Kansas and Nebraska. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Massachusetts tax revenue has fallen short of expectations for six months in a row. That sparked questions about what's behind the decline and what it means for the state's economy. WBUR's Todd Wallach takes a look. Jared Walzak of the Tax Foundation says Massachusetts is faring worse than most other states. Massachusetts declining tax revenues across multiple tax types, including the sales tax, is legitimate cause for concern. This is not what most states are experiencing. Walzak suggests the new millionaire tax could be hurting spending by the wealthy. But Northeastern University economist Alan Clayton Matthews disagrees. If your incomes are up above a million or more and you're spending a bit less, that effect should be pretty small. Matthews thinks it's just a temporary dip due to volatile financial markets and people running out of cash they piled up during the pandemic. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Todd Wallach. Levels of COVID in Boston-area wastewater are at their highest level in two years. Levels from last week are 10 times higher than they were in early November. Despite the increase, the infection rate is still much lower than during the Omicron surge in the winter of 2022. Experts say getting a COVID booster shot and wearing a mask will minimize your chance of getting sick. Environmental groups are calling on Massachusetts lawmakers to update the so-called bottle bill. They claim litter would be reduced in the state by 85 percent if it was updated to include all beverage containers, not just carbonated drinks. They also want deposits increased from 5 cents to 10. Advocates say the 40-year-old nickel deposit is not enough to incentive for and not enough incentive for people to return a can or bottle, so more are ending up in the trash. It's 8.33. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Explo, part magic, part summer enrichment program for curious kids and teens. For dates and campuses, visit explo.org slash summer. Brad Marchand scored twice for the Bruins last night in Denver, but the Bruins lost to the Avalanche in a shootout 4-3. The Bees will visit the Arizona Coyotes tonight. The Celtics fell to the Indiana Pacers 133-131 last night in Indianapolis. That's despite 40 points from Jalen Brown. The Seas will be home tomorrow to play the Minnesota Timberwolves. Clouds move in throughout the day today and will have highs in the mid-30s. A storm arrives this afternoon, possibly bringing snow, then rain is likely this evening. Showers could be heavy at times and there will 
will also be high winds, particularly along the coast. That'll continue overnight and through early tomorrow morning, and temperatures will rise to the low 50s. The rain tapers off around mid-morning tomorrow, and skies gradually clear as temperatures fall to the mid-40s. It's 29 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies solve food from employee meal plans to on-site staffing with corporate accounts, nationwide restaurant coverage, and payment by invoice. EasyCater.com. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from a single platform. Learn more at indeed.com slash NPR. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Stephen Skeep. An effort to make federal student aid easier seems instead to have made it harder. The federal government updated a form that some 17 million people fill out to see if they'd qualify for help paying for college. But the form arrived three months late, and a problem with it puts students at risk of getting less financial aid than they should. NPR's Corey Turner joins us now. Corey, good morning. Good morning, Steve. What went wrong? Well, so... First, we're talking about the free application for federal student aid, which is better known as FAFSA. Mm -hmm. Uh, After the form opened on December 30th, lots of students complained about not being able to access it or having to spend long stretches in a waiting room because it was only open to a limited number of people for a few hours at a time. I will say the education department just announced the form is now open 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and they've had more than a million applicants fill it out, which is roughly on pace with previous years. Okay, so uh, that part stabilized, but is the form itself correct? So bear with me here, Steve. Okay. The form is correct. What's wrong is the math the education department plans to use to determine how much financial aid a student should get. So the problem was first reported last month by the Washington Post, and it came up as the department was making big changes to the form that were required by Congress, you know, like you said, making it easier to fill out. This year's FAFSA is also more generous than in previous years, and that's because the math behind it protects more of a student's or family's income from being considered in the overall student aid equation. Here's the problem. Congress told the department to adjust these income protections so they keep up with inflation. But the department didn't do that. We don't really know why. They just didn't do it. Although it sounds like a big deal, given that in the last couple of years, there was a good deal of inflation. It's a lot of inflation. And so If you don't adjust for inflation, families applying for aid are going to appear like they have a lot more income than they really do. And that then means they're going to get less federal student aid. So it won't hurt the lowest income families, but it will hurt hundreds of thousands of students in the income ranges just above them. Corey, you said this is just a math problem, and I'm just thinking back, you know, uh, when you get a math problem wrong in school, which I certainly did plenty of times, I mean, the teacher marks it up with a red pencil, puts a frowny face there, and then you correct it. Why don't they just fix the math? 
The problem is it is a huge fix to make, you know, that would require retrofitting the coding beneath the entire system, among other things. And basically a new logistical nightmare just as the FAFSA rollout was starting to calm down. And time is not on the department's side, Steve. They and schools are under enormous pressure to hurry financial aid offers to students because we're already months behind. The FAFSA process normally starts in October. This year, colleges won't be able to start sending out offers until February at the earliest. I am hearing from sources that in spite of all that, the department is leaning towards fixing this now. A spokesperson would only say they're still assessing their options. Ultimately, the department has two ugly options here. They can keep things moving by denying students the full aid that Congress envisioned, or they can risk exacerbating FAFSA delays and confusion in order to follow the law and save families money. Corey, thanks so much. You're welcome. That's NPR's Corey Turner. A decade after Vermont announced an effort to address the state's opioid epidemic, fatal overdoses have quadrupled, and the crisis is more visible because more people are living on the streets. Liam Elder Connors with Vermont Public has this report. The annual state of the state is usually a predictable affair where the governor outlines a laundry list of accomplishments and priorities. Ten years ago this week, Vermont Governor Peter Shumlin deviated from that script to focus exclusively on what he called the rising tide of opiates. What started as an Oxycontin and prescription drug addiction problem in Vermont has now grown into a full-blown heroin crisis. Shumlin, a Democrat, pitched lawmakers on a multi-point plan largely focused on expanding the state's recovery centers and increasing access to addiction treatment. Ten years later, Vermont has largely implemented Shumlin's plan and by some measures made progress. South Burlington resident Jess Kirby, who first took opiates as a teenager, says she got on a list for methadone in 2006 and waited for two years. You had to call every month and make your case basically on a voicemail that, hey, I'm still here, I'm calling, I still need treatment, please keep me on the list type of thing. And if you didn't call, then you would get put back to the bottom of the list. The state has since expanded its treatment system and largely eliminated waiting lists. There are nearly 12,000 Vermonters currently in treatment, about double the number in 2014. But Kirby and other recovery workers say progress in Vermont and the rest of the country has stalled, largely due to more powerful drugs, pandemic isolation, and a rise in homelessness. Former Governor Peter Shumlin in an interview last week said he doesn't think public policy in Vermont has kept up. Frankly, what we've done, in my view, and the tragedy is, we've accepted this as sort of part of life as opposed to attacking it with everything that we have. And I think we've got to get back to focusing on this is not acceptable. The number of fatal overdoses in Vermont has skyrocketed, driven by the rise of fentanyl, a powerful synthetic opioid that's essentially replaced heroin. The dramatic spike in overdoses led Burlington, Vermont's largest city, to launch a new team of paramedics who exclusively respond to overdoses. We have a red trauma bag and then we have blue for airway bags. On a recent morning, Jenny Bronson was preparing for a 10-hour shift with the new team. A big part of the job is to drive around the city and talk to people living outside. Anything that we need to be able to do, CPR on scene, minister with minimal um, medications, but basics that we would need, we carry it all around with us all the time. They also hand out first aid supplies and Narcan, an overdose reversing medication. Bronson says two months in, they've built up trust with people. Now they know that we are there to try to help them and give them anything that we can and help them before they need to call 911. Burlington's effort is an example of a larger shift in the past decade towards treating opioid addiction as a disease. 
Recently, a more controversial harm reduction strategy is gaining support in Vermont, overdose prevention centers, also known as safe injection sites. Those are facilities where people can use drugs under medical supervision. A bill in the Vermont legislature would carve out legal protections for facility operators and people who use them. But it's unclear if Republican Governor Phil Scott would support the measure. Jess Kirby, the woman who spent two years on the methadone wait list, now works at a recovery center in Burlington. She says the state needs these facilities. People really need more options to be able to stay safe. We're up against an extremely deadly, potent supply of drugs. But Kirby says overdose prevention centers alone won't solve the opioid crisis. She says other efforts need to be prioritized, like making it even easier to access methadone, which tends to work better for treating fentanyl use. Methadone has allowed me to have a full life and a healthy life and to have recovery and all of those things. Kirby says expanding access to treatment could help other Vermonters who are struggling begin to stabilize. For NPR News, I'm Liam Elder Connors in Burlington, Vermont. This is NPR News. Tonight at 7, Boston Mayor Michelle Wu delivers her State of the City address. Last year, she laid out goals for growing the city's population and controlling soaring housing costs. Listen live at 7 on 90.9 WBUR as she looks back and lays out her vision for the year ahead. Coming up in 10 minutes on WBUR, the Marketplace Morning Report asks how the latest issue with Boeing's signature aircraft, the 737 MAX 9 plane, may impact the company. It'll slowly grow overcast today. Temperatures will be in the upper 30s. Late this afternoon, a big rain and windstorm arrives. WBUR meteorologist Daniel Noyce has the latest. Another storm moving in, mainly a rain and wind event, although it starts as a brief burst of snow along and outside of 495 this evening before changing over, coating to two inches possible before the flip to rain there. Rain starts in Boston around or just after 5 p.m. It pours overnight tonight. Downpours, thunder possible, one to three inches of rain, localized flooding results. Rain pushes off the coast 6 to 7 a.m., so it is in and out fairly quickly, just a leftover shower after that. Wind gusts 40 to 50 miles per hour for many, 50 to 60 along the coast, scattered damage and outages result. The worst wind midnight until about 6 a.m., then gusts will throttle back a bit after that. Highs in the 50s fall into the 40s tomorrow afternoon. It's 30 degrees in Boston. WBUR supporters include Brookline Booksmith. Alex Michaelides and Karen Schiffman discuss Michaelides' new novel, The Fury, on January 17th. BrooklineBooksmith.com. A Chinese medical manufacturing company says its new facility in Massachusetts will be even busier than first expected. Wuxi Biologic is building a factory in Worcester that it says will eventually have 200 workers. It says the factory will be busier than predicted because of a rise in global demand for its products. The parent company of several Boston radio stations has declared bankruptcy. Odyssey filed for Chapter 11 yesterday. The company says that will allow it to reduce its debt. Odyssey is the second largest radio company in the country. A new food hall will open this month in Boston's financial district. It's called the Lineup at the Connector. It's inside the Winthrop Center on Federal Street. There will be a Mexican restaurant, a burger joint, Mediterranean food, and more. The food hall opens January 17th. It's 845. WBUR supporters include Boston's How Do You See the World experience with the Maparium Globe. Visit and explore stories about global progress. 
Tickets at HowDoYouSeeTheWorld.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. Good morning. Fans of the Michigan Wolverines, you already know. Your team took home their first national title in decades. Here's what you heard on ESPN. Hail, hail Michigan. They are the champions of college football 2023. It was a battle of two undefeateds in the college football playoff national championship game last night, with number one Michigan taking on the number two ranked Washington Huskies. But the Wolverines dominated throughout and ended their perfect season with a 34-13 win over the Huskies. For more on this, I'm joined by ESPN's Jesse Washington. Jesse, thanks so much for staying up late. For those of us who cannot... Glad to be up early. (laughs) Any big takeaways from last night's win? Oh, yeah. Michigan's defense is crazy. You know, Washington had a great quarterback with Michael Penix Jr., loved his lefty play behind center, loved his purple do-rag, but they really threw him off all night with great pressure. He wasn't able to get in a rhythm. He overthrew a couple of plays. He wasn't able to hit the big plays that Washington was known for all season. So Michigan's defense really carried the day. Their offense did what they had to do. And they won the national championship. I do think, though, football fans were expecting a a bit more of a competitive game after the season that Washington had. What what do you make of it? It wasn't uncompetitive. You know, Washington's defense settled down. They got gashed in the first half. And Michigan ran for 200 and a little bit yards, which was the most in any half they had that season. But Washington settled down. And in the third quarter, they just traded field goals. And it was a one-score game. Mm -hmm. And But as the fourth quarter started, you got the feeling that Whatever team was able to make a big play first would win. And then, bing, Michigan hits the tight end for 41 yards. They get in the scoring range. They punch it in for a touchdown. And that seemed like the game was over then. So it was pretty competitive. Okay, fair, because, you know, some of us have to go to bed. I'm just saying, at the half. So... It's been a long drought for Michigan. They last won in a national championship in 1997, but this also comes after an NCAA investigation into allegations of in-person scouting and stealing signs. The Michigan coach, Jim Harbaugh, was actually suspended for three games. Now, you could look at this as kind of a triumph over adversity, but you could look at that as a tarnish on the title. How do you think about it? First, I got to correct you. Harbaugh was suspended for six games this season, three by his own school. Mm. And the, you know, the allegations, we won't go down that rabbit hole. I will say that the NCAA issued a statement that included the word cheeseburger in it. And we also are talking about people in disguise on other sidelines. So there's that. You know, I think that this is not a triumph over adversity. I think that this is just big time sports doing what big time sports does. Mm. And I hate to say it, Michelle, but nobody cares about all these allegations. The NCAA doesn't care. The NCAA wants Michigan in this game because it's a huge brand. They Mm. get ratings. They get fans. And that's what the NCAA is all about. This is just big time college sports at the highest level. It's how it goes. If you ain't cheating, you ain't trying. Wow. And so it's it's more just uh, what it is, is the NCAA triumphing over all of the cloudy smoke that always surrounds sports at the highest level. Wow. Not, no, no cynicism here? Just a little. Just okay. <laughs> but you know right. what? I, I wasn't thinking about stealing, stealing signs during the game. I was thinking about, man, is, is Penix going to connect downfield? Okay. Are they going to pick him off again? That's what I was thinking about, and the game delivered. Coach Harbaugh has a national championship, previously coaching the NFL. You think he'll stay at Michigan, or you think he's going back to the NFL? He has not closed the door. All right. That's ESPN's Jesse Washington. Jesse, thank you. Thank you.
This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll tell us about France's new prime minister, who's just 34 years old, and the fading hope that NASA's current mission to the moon will reach the lunar surface. It's 8.50. Most PPP loans, Paycheck Protection Program, have been forgiven despite billions of dollars going to undeserving recipients. There are some companies that are voluntarily paying back their loans. I don't want to sound self-righteous, but the people at the higher wealth end of the spectrum that kept it, that didn't need it, yeah, I got a problem with that. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. More on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen again after 4 today on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Tuesday morning. Former President Donald Trump will be in court today to argue he has immunity from any criminal charges related to the 2020 election. The European Climate Agency says 2023 was the hottest year on record and January is on track to be warmer. And Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in Israel for talks about a post-war plan for Gaza. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lexus Broadway in Boston, presenting Girl from the North Country, playing in Boston this March. Written and directed by Connor McPherson, this new musical reimagines the songs of Bob Dylan, including Forever Young, Slow Train Coming, Like a Rolling Stone, and Make You Feel My Love. More at LexisBroadwayInBoston.com. It'll gradually grow overcast today and temperatures will rise to the upper 30s. A storm moves in late this afternoon and a little snow is possible before it starts to rain around 5 this evening. Showers may be heavy at times and there will also be gusty winds. That'll continue overnight and into early tomorrow morning as temperatures rise to the low 50s. Those fall during the day Wednesday to the mid-40s and skies gradually clear. We may see some sun in the afternoon. It's 30 degrees in Boston. How will Boeing's bottom line be affected by the latest problems with its MAX planes? Marketplace Morning Report is supported by C3 Generative AI. Verified, traceable answers, secure, hallucination-free, LLM agnostic, IP liability-free. Learn more at c3.ai. And by Progressive. Progressive Commercial Insurance offers personalized rates and customizable coverages for your business vehicles. More at progressivecommercial.com. From Marketplace, I'm Nancy Marshall-Genzer in for David Brancaccio. Investigators are continuing to look into why a piece of a Boeing aircraft blew off an Alaska Airlines flight over the weekend. United Airlines found loose bolts on similar grounded 737 MAX 9 planes. This is the latest issue with Boeing's signature aircraft. Problems with a supplier surfaced last summer. And about five years ago, two 737 MAX 8 planes crashed grounding those planes for more than a year. But as Marketplace's Henry Epp reports, the company might not lose much business as a result of this latest incident. Even before the Alaska Airlines incident, Boeing's recent record didn't look great. The perception out there in the industry is Boeing has a lot of quality problems. John Golia is an independent safety consultant and a former member of the National Transportation Safety Board. He says those problems are leading to headaches for Boeing's customers, commercial airlines. 
the customer is spending an inordinate amount of time working through issues that should not have made it out of the factory. In a lot of industries, if the product a business relies on isn't up to its standards, it cancels orders from that supplier. But in the case of commercial jets, it's not that easy, in part because the wait for a jet traditionally is years long, says Richard Abulafia, Managing Director of Aerodynamic Advisory. You want to get your place in line. You might order a plane for delivery in 2028 because of fear that you know someone else could get there first. And in the plane manufacturing industry, there isn't much in the way of competition. Besides Boeing, European-based Airbus is really the only other game in town for big jets. Their only competitor, Airbus, has even longer backlogs. So if you were an airline customer for the 737 MAX, the alternative would be go to Airbus and wait until 2030 for your jet. Abu Lafia thinks that means few airlines will drop Boeing over this latest 737 MAX accident. Boeing has been losing market share to Airbus in recent years. As of mid-December, Boeing had received about 1,000 orders for jets in 2023, compared to about 1,400 for Airbus, according to Reuters. But maintaining some amount of competition in the aircraft manufacturing sector is important to airlines, says George Dimitrov with Sirium Ascend Consultancy. If everybody starts running to Airbus, they're very conscious that that eliminates the only serious competitor to Airbus, which is Boeing, and that could have longer-term implications for aircraft pricing. But in the nearer term, he says, some airlines that planned to place an order with Boeing this year might wait to see how the aftermath of the Alaska Airlines accident plays out. I'm Henry Epp for Marketplace. Let's do the numbers. The Dow, S&P, and NASDAQ futures are all down in the 4 to 7 tenths percent range, with the Dow future down more than 150 points. The 10-year Treasury yield is also lower at 4.03 percent. Here's something to look forward to. The IRS says the 2024 tax season will officially start on Monday, January 29th. The agency got additional funding from Congress to update technology and improve customer service. It's promising shorter wait times on its toll-free line. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by JLL, using technology and data-driven insights to solve complex commercial real estate challenges for clients worldwide. JLL.com. See a brighter way. And by UiPath. More than 10,000 organizations use the UiPath AI-powered business automation platform to put AI to work. UiPath.com slash marketplace. UiPath, the foundation of innovation. And by Bitwarden. The Bitwarden password manager enables quick and easy logins through biometric unlock and password autofill. More at bitwarden.com. Farmers across Germany are continuing a week of nationwide protests. They're upset about the government's plan to revoke key agricultural subsidies. The government proposals stem from a budget crisis after a court ruled that Germany's 2024 budget was illegal. Here's the BBC's Liana Byrne with Brussels correspondent Jessica Parker. So just give us the background to Germany's budget crisis. Why is the government there facing a financial black hole? Yeah, I mean, it's a black hole of tens of billions of euros. And it is after in November last year, there was this bombshell ruling by Germany's constitutional court, which essentially declared that the government's planned budget was unlawful. So they had to go back to the drawing board, try and find some savings. And and this is where this all began in terms of the farmers' protest because they 
proposed to end farmers' uh, tax breaks on agricultural diesel and abolish this preferential treatment they get as well in terms of vehicle tax. That latter proposal has now actually been dropped because of the controversy and the plan to end tax breaks on agricultural diesel, that's now going to be phased in rather than brought in abruptly. But it doesn't seem to have really sufficiently assuaged farmers' anger. So uh, this week, farmers are protesting up and down the country. And what were farmers saying in terms of those subsidy cuts? How would they affect farmers in Germany? A lot of them were saying it's a bit like the straw that broke the camel's back and that they feel their industry isn't being properly supported, that it's being squeezed by rules and regulation uh, and red tape. And some as well sort of spoke out against green initiatives that might come from Berlin or might come from the European Union in Brussels as being part of, as they see it, the problem as well. Part of the conversation about these protests is concern of right-wing extremists infiltrating these protests. Is that a serious concern? There are certainly examples and evidence of far-right groups turning up at protests or associating themselves with these demonstrations. And one campaigner we were speaking to yesterday was saying they actually changed their plans because they weren't comfortable with the prospect, as they knew was going to happen, of a a far-right group turning up. That being said, look, I think not all of those taking part speak with one voice. There was a banner yesterday draped over a one truck I saw that was explicitly in support of Alternative for Deutschland, which is, of course, the far-right party that's doing very well in the polls at the moment. But it's certainly true to say that there is a little bit of mixing in going on there with the wider politics of Germany and some of the trends that we're seeing. Jessica Parker in Berlin, thank you so much for joining us in Marketplace. My pleasure. And that was the BBC's Liana Byrne speaking to Brussels correspondent Jessica Parker. In Washington, I'm Nancy Marshall-Genzer with the Marketplace Morning Report from APM, American Public Media. I'm Morning Edition executive producer Dan Guzman. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.